0: Hello, and welcome to yet another edition of Uh I'm Milo Edwards. I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Nate Bethay.
1: Hello, once again, lovely day. Uh, getting not rained on and not being cold for the first time in a long time in August, because I've just embraced it. This <laughs> is what summer is like sucked. in the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah, I uh, I drove over the roof down this morning after I pulled a muscle in my neck playing squash. So just reminding myself that I am aging, uh, that death is coming for us all. Um, you know, there was a time when this didn't happen to me. Uh, and this week we are discussing a topic uh, dear to the hearts of many listeners and probably complete another utter anathema to our American listeners. Uh, it's Indie Landfill or Landfill Indie, depending on which, uh, <laughs> which way round you think that phrase should go. <laughs> um, and we are joined by two experts in this field, uh, the, uh, the field of the mid 2000s. I don't know uh, if I'd
2: use the word experts. Victims,
0: maybe. Victims, okay. Yeah, this is like a, this is like a group therapy session <laughs> yeah. uh, for the victims of the mid-2000s. <laughs> uh, we are joined by Oscar Rickett and uh, Fred, whose surname I was never told. Uh,
2: Macpherson. <laughs>
3: Fred Macpherson.
0: <laughs> there you go. Um,
3: uh,
2: hello, welcome.
3: Hi, great to be back. Great God. to be
2: here for the first time. I've heard great things about this podcast, but I have yet to get around to listening to it. No worries. That's the best way, I think. I listened to a bit of your episode about the mound, the Marble Arch mound, on the way, Mm. on the way, and that got me hyped.
1: All right, cool. Yeah, well, we spun this out because our show did start to get uh, an American audience, and obviously, me being American, there are a lot of things that I have to ask Milo, like what the what the fuck is this? Like, what the fuck is a carry-on film? And so Milo (laughs) had the idea of like, I'm just going to make Nate suffer through learning about niche British things, and uh, thus this sort of spin out part of Trash Future was born. Um, and so we're going to talk about indie in the early 2000s or mid-2000s. Uh, yeah, it's been a real smorgasbord so far. We've done carry-on. We've done dogging. Um, we we've done,
0: we, as in, we have discussed it. We did uh, go dogging. It wasn't like gonzo journalism. We're not, we're not Vice Magazine. It's not like... We're not yeah, we we going b- to bring you, you in here and, and
1: make you start um, a band on this episode. But no. uh, I,
3: I wouldn't put it beyond Fred, though. Um, it's,
2: it's funny that you mentioned we're doing something that we're kind of explaining it back to um, Americans or English people who were lucky enough to not Mm. engage in it. Um, I think it's one of the you know how kind of um, discourse or criticism catches up with culture over the years so Americans might have read lots of books about Mm. punk or Mm -hmm. 80s uh, you know synth music or bands from that era or Britpop, and we've read lots about American stuff through the 70s, mm. 80s, 90s this is kind of the the last or first bit that's just on the brink of being something that's actually talked about as an actual thing. And I think people are still kind of forming the ways of understanding it. With, with, with um, America, you mentioned just before we started recording the Meet Me in the Bathroom book, yeah, which is great and kind mm. of uh, enshrines a relatively recent period with a lot of, um, it makes you feel like it was a, real thing that actually happened.
0: A book that if it was in the UK could have been about dogging.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. in, indie is a bit, a bit like dogging in a way. I think <laughs> landfill indie as much. Like, no one wants to say they were there, but at mm. the time everyone was really enjoying it, gathering in relatively clandestine ways yeah. to kind of
3: um, exercise themselves of something. And this, the, circles of, the, sort of, the cycles of nostalgia that we have in our culture are that much shorter now that that we're i mean maybe yeah, this I- is my unwillingness to accept the passage of time mm. um uh, but but of course i am a, a casualty of the, the early to mid noughties and so and actually as, as 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 me and fred were talking about before we came on here it's 20 years ago to almost to this week that the strokes this is it album came out um and it it was that's probably it inspired Osama bin Laden to no. Hilariously, <laughs> hilariously, <laughs> hilariously, <laughs>
1: hilariously, it. Came, I think, I don't know if it came out early in the UK. It was supposed to come out, if I'm not mistaken, mm. right after September 11th. But they had to pull it because America went through this really weird. I was, I was there. I was 16 when this happened. Went through this really weird kind of mockish. We can't be uh, transgressive. We can't be challenging. Phase. So the two problems were a, f-
3: a phase that it's still very yeah, much in in a, in, yeah. a in, in, in a
1: much more armed and psychotic way. But yeah, it was really mockish and really really like prudish. And the the strokes, the original cover of Is This It was a really high contrast black and white photo of like a woman's ass and like a leather glove. And they're like, nope, nope, we're conservative now. And there was a song called New York City Cops where the the, the choruses. New York City cops—they ain't too smart—and so with everyone's grandma buying NYPD and FDNY sweatshirts after 9/11, they're like, "No, this can't fucking happen." So they mm. pulled the album and they put it out in I think October with like a completely different cover and a different, different song. You know, yeah, different, when it started, yeah. with this song. Yeah. Um, and New York City mm. Cops is so much better of a song. Hundred percent. I just remember being like, "Why the fuck?" Being you know, angsty sixteen-year-old. Certainly,
3: when they were touring Britain uh, in in that time, it was New York City Cops was one of the big. I mean that moment, was yeah. yeah that was a that was always a big moment in the set. And- it's one of the best mm.
2: songs, and actually looking back to that era, not that I know much about New York at the turn mm-hmm. of the century, other than my fantasy kind of strokes wank bank that was plastered yeah. across my wall mm. at the time. Um, if anything, that would have been an even greater moment had it been allowed to happen. It probably made it cooler that there was this song that wasn't allowed to be on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mm. also it's just weird because the... It was so much... I mean, to, to uh, not open up a huge parenthesis about 9-11, but so much about America's reaction to 9-11 had nothing to do with New Yorkers and how New Yorkers felt. It was about how everyone who'd never been to New York or who fucking hates New York and thinks of it as like this den of sin and vice mm. felt about what happened there. And so like, yeah, that wasn't done for the benefit of New Yorkers who might be offended. It was mm. done for the benefit of like the same people who would have gotten mad that the Coup's album, Party Music, was supposed to come out on September 11th and the cover was yeah. them blowing up
3: the world. <laughs> I, was just thinking, I was just thinking yeah, that there's, there's quite a contrast between Vacu's Boots Riley, Vacu's album, which was yeah, which was, but didn't he stick to his guns?
1: And didn't that album come out? With, it did eventually the, yes, with it the was, exploded. It World was, was it was behind? it was Boots Riley, and I can't remember his uh, his bandmate. And he's pushing the button on a remote detonator, and behind him, the World
4: Trade Center is
3: <laughs> But I mean, it, it, it's funny because I was doing. this. I mean, I didn't expect to be incorporating this material into this show, but I was doing a story about Donald Rumsfeld after he died, and I spoke to. You know, various people who had worked with him who were basically like, you know, kind of confirmed and talking about what we sort of all know, which is like the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq was essentially an hysterical, wounded reaction to 9-11. So, Mm. I mean, if that's going to happen, then you can can bet that the strokes of taking New York City cops off Mm. their album. And yeah. there was there was a
2: lot of talk about, you know, Metallica or whoever being played in Guantanamo Bay as part of uh, torture yeah, processes, right. but had they had access to a couple of Razor Light or Kooks
3: albums. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> we that, might that the answers that we're still uh, looking for. That's actually against
3: the Geneva Convention. All my yeah. life watching America.
4: Yeah, yeah
1: that's
0: right. If you, you try sticking the klaxons <laughs> on, and then people are going to get really mad
1: uh, down in Guantanamo Bay. So, so I got to ask then, like, if you were... T- to me, when I think of early 2000s to mid-2000s music, like indie, if you want to call it, that... L- this is, as I recall, mostly major label stuff or like mid-tier label stuff in America. <clears throat> the Strokes is a huge one. And then I think of Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. I think of TV on the radio. Subsequently, LCD sound system. Um, obvi- b- with rock bands, you also have some things from overseas that were popular. Um, but I was trying to one- ask you guys, what would be that sort of like, when you talk about landfill indie, which bands are like that equivalent here?
2: Well, I think landfill indie is usually used to refer to the bands who were the kind of also rans who had less cultural resonance, but mm. ended up filling the shelves as labels rushed out to sign the kind of supporting cast.
0: Bands that when you mention them now, people go, oh, yeah, fuck. Like that. Yeah. That was the reaction. And,
1: and my impression was also that there is this phenomenon in British music journalism, particularly with, with outlets like the NME, that like literally any band that has a single is the band that is going to save rock and roll. And that this was a phenomenon back then. And so there was so much hype behind it that uh, it. I- per-
2: yeah, sorry to ahead, interrupt. I think um, this was also music journalism in the UK in almost its final form, entering its final form. The last era of NME is something that could actually sell yeah. and people would buy. I mean, I, I remember buying a copy while I was still at school that came with loads of stickers. That, yeah, yeah. you know, it was this part, it became a, a pop cultural moment where indie boy f- fans or and girl fans were almost treating it like. Just 17 or one of these kind of teen yeah, yeah, yeah. magazines mm. where it informed so much more than just what you were listening to, but how you're doing your hair or what clothes mm. you were buying. And it was one of the last moments, um, at least for guitar music, where all the stars aligned to actually affect culture beyond its mm. kind of...
3: It, I, think, I think to sort of we sort of set out this kind of differentiation between America and Britain on this. Um there there when you talk about bands like The Strokes and TV on the radio, um there's there there was and is, as there always has been, in popular music, a kind of ongoing conversation between America and the UK. And there was a lot of, you know, kind of cross-pollination and a lot of the sort of first wave 21st century indie bands from britain were very recognizably mm. um in conversation with um bands like the strokes and interpol um and you know bands that kind of came came out of that scene and that is that's all stuff that we would probably consider to be pre-landfill um the you know the 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 kind of you know the, the Strokes album comes out in two thousand and one. The Libertines are not that far after that. Yeah. The Libertines mm. are the Libertines are the sort of probably now we would consider the big British answer to or equivalent of. The strokes. Yeah,
2: although in reality in terms of the long when you zoom out, it's probably more realistically the Arctic Monkeys yes. in terms of actually yeah, becoming yeah, a global yeah. phenomenon. And yeah. I found today when I was on the way over, I Googled I was like, How many albums have the strokes actually sold? And and allegedly, according to Wikipedia, up to 2020, it was about five million albums worldwide whereas um, the Arctic Monkeys have sold 20 million albums worldwide. Mm. So in reality, you go on to become an even bigger yeah. commercial global force yeah. than any indie band other than, say, the Killers and Kings of Leon, who then went on to be yeah. you know, stuff that my mum would still probably listen sure, to yeah. to this day. Yeah, because the
0: Arctic Monkeys have really bridged that generational gap from a band that I think people of like, our generation-ish liked to like being a band that like teenagers are into now and are unaware that they were big, like... Right. Years ago. Whereas yeah. I imagine
2: Libertines have probably sold, not that it's about record sales, obviously. Yeah. Indie is, is originally short for independent music. Mm. Um, although actually, it's worth noting the Arctic Monkeys are a band who did this on an independent label. Yeah. The Strokes were signed to Rough Trade in the UK, which yeah. is indie, but RCA, I think, in America. So it wasn't quite pure mm. indie in terms of how it was disseminated. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And there
3: was still that. And I mean, you know, so the, the, the first sort of indie record in the United Kingdom is nineteen is Nick Lowe in uh, in, in nineteen seventy six on s I'm stiff. Um. It, you know, if if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. Um, mm. And and that that that's, song, Os- that's Oscar's
2: personal catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that song that song is it's a great song. So it goes. It's a great I don't song. Know, I don't it's know. basically a rip off of uh, the Boys Are Back in Town. i was gonna say yeah. I, and, it's a great and, song, but and, it's and so really close, is. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very derivative. But but I mean, so it's been like, and that's that what was I mean, the
2: landfill answer to it, the pure, real culture of Boys Are Back in Town? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it was landfill
3: from they won i mean (laughs) Mm -hmm. hey nick you've got a lot to answer for and that but that like um but but so it's like to sort of i was saying to fred like i'm so i was 18 in 2001 and i was going to university i went to university in leeds just after 9-11 and and at that Leeds was exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) unruffled (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no one was affected <laughs> um uh, I, uh, I remember um, there was a bad thunderstorm once in, in our, one of our... Le- um, which was shaking the lecture theatre and everyone freaked out and thought that we were being attacked. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then some guys... Um, Leeds, Leeds was always Leeds. on there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember targets. thinking at the time, I remember thinking, well, if we're attacking Leeds, they've probably already got London and I guess maybe my <laughs> family's dead. <laughs> mm. um, and, the, um, and then... Some guys, um I remember some guys coming up to me in the street and being like, Osama bin Laden, me, Osama bin Laden, nine eleven. <laughs> Just like <laughs> getting up in my as if mm. as if this was like um as if as if this was like going to be meted out on This actually happened
1: date. to you recently. Uh, not that long ago. I was <laughs> uh, I was right. I was running an errand in Whitechapel and uh there were these kids probably about thirteen or fourteen and they were coming out of school and they they saw me, you know, locking my bike up. And the kid asked me, and I'm not going to try to approximate his accent, but like extremely like East London, Bengali accent. Like, hey, man, you know my friend? And he holds up a picture of Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, what I basically I, I, my, my default response in situations like that is to speak as Americanly as possible and be like, I have no idea what the fuck you just said. But like. Yeah, I was just taking well, a bike, our but boys got him. <laughs> yeah, something to that effect. But I was, just, but I was just basically <laughs> it's the like, his yeah, like, be upon the martyr." <laughs>
3: that's, the, that's what's going
1: to freak them out the most.
3: Um, I didn't, um, but but the the sort of because because it's sort of like indie before landfill indie was was I mean sort of genuinely there was there was always that conversation, you know, which was particularly particularly happened in america with grunge about about mm. selling out and what la- what labels you're on yeah and and i mean that was very much still a kind of present and ongoing conversation in in our generation although it was sort of more and more common as there came less and less money in independent music it was more and more common for bands to just be on major labels yeah and to, mm. to, to have their songs used in adverts and stuff like that but it was it was definitely still like i remember a lot a lot of agonizing uh among friends and bands about like whether they were going to sign you know like whether they were going to sign to this a- everyone kind of wanted to sign to domino or to rough trade because they were the independent labels that had a bit of clout and had a bit of money um there was a lot of like and history and history of course and there was a lot of like um uh you know i'm i'm not taking this major label deal i'm gonna do like which which to me like i, I look back on with a lot of fondness because it's like because i don't know i mean it, it 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 feels like you would want to live in a culture where selling out is a thing sure and mm. it means something um it's also worth
2: noting that we're talking obviously very seriously about something that in essence was very dumb and very fun (laughs) and kind of as tempting as it is to analyze it to blithery in reality it is was what most music genres always are which is young people trying to you know Mm. get laid and get attention and drink alcohol and Mm. do drugs and
1: et cetera, et cetera. The podcasting of its day. It, well, yeah, like, you yeah, know yeah, what? Yeah. Being in a band then was like <laughs> well, there, being a podcast. There, there are times when I ask myself with the stuff that we do with our show, especially when we do live shows, I'm just sort of like, is this what being in a band is like? Because I mean, like I said, I was in a, in like a Misfits cover band when I was in high school, but that was it. I didn't like we toured or anything, but for TF, we've gone, Shows around the country and stuff like that, and there's times that I'm like, "Is this what it was like being in an indie band?" I have no idea. Yeah,
2: Red Scare is the Strokes, and yeah, <laughs> you the <guys are> <laughs> if you're <lucky. laughs> Well,
4: it's
2: funny
0: because I was yeah, thinking about this. So, like, we're here talking about <laughs> landfill indie. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, you were you were mentioning. I, I, I realized now that when I mentioned New York bands from the early 2000s, I totally forgot about Interpol. uh mm. And one thing that was funny, I think, was that there's a lot of this stuff talking about it sort of being and like Gavin uh, <laughs> having like, them ha- like but not New York City cops. <laughs> <No, laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> crucially not <laughs> um, came out. It was funny because I'll be honest with you their first album was Turn On The Bright Lights like a lot of all the times it album. was sold to, to people they're like oh no man it's like an American band but they sound like Joy Division yeah. which I'm like alright big you know 25-ish 23-25-ish year gap there between those bands but then also what's really funny to me is that I remember my friend who was like was a station director at a college radio station at the University of Georgia. Like he was really, into, he still got, to my opinion, great at taste in music. He really didn't care that much for the second. Uh, Interpol album Because he's like the sounds so much Like fucking Franz Ferdinand And I'm like mm-hmm. I like Franz Ferdinand I always have But it's just funny to me Because I was like He saw that as like <laughs> The official ob- position Of this podcast Is that we yeah, like yeah, Franz yeah, Ferdinand friends <laughs> <of the show. laughs> We like them dude, but, I'm <laughs> glad we got <laughs> that They, <laughs> they, they sold, sold a lot of albums
3: They sold the 4 artist, million dude. copies Of the first one yeah. I, I, I went I saw them live they in they, America There like,
1: you When I was 20 The like reason
0: why we know Those guys is because When I lived in Moscow They came out to do shows In Russia And my flatmate was this fucking nuts Irish guy who'd been at university with Bob, their bassist. And he was out of town, but they were supposed to be like hanging out with him and he was going to show them around. So I ended up doing it um they were like oh this guy's fun well i kept taking them to places where like i would get i was on russian tv at the time so like i would get recognized by one guy and then they would get recognized by a different guy so we ended up like not paying the bill like literally anywhere that we went um and i went to this show they were doing and like people were fucking nuts for them. like no one in russia knows anything from the west usually but like yeah this was like an incredibly
1: dedicated franz ferdinand fan base. we we did an (laughs) episode with uh with bob and alex and then uh, you know, I followed them on Instagram, and like when they were touring South America, they would be post some of the photos of their crowds. and I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys! Like, I did not realize you were feeling like fucking national yeah. stadium uh, yeah. size. There was, was a
0: fucking Mexican film crew in some restaurant we we're at because they were there for the World Cup, it was about the same time. And then they all came over and were like, We are huge Franz Ferdinand fans. It was yeah, like it's, a real, it's wild to me. I saw uh, yeah. the
3: strokes from the Kings of Leon play in Argentina, like, not. Not that long into their time as bands. And it was like the only gig you could get a was ticket like, to you're like, thousand people. Jesus. Like, it was absolutely Jesus. massive.
1: I, I remember I remember hearing I was a big enough Interpol fan, I remember getting bootlegs of some of their shows and like hearing uh European audiences going fucking nuts for them. Like they played a show in like Rennes or Nantes or something like that in France. And literally they were like, This is the best crowd we ever had, but guys, like, please stop destroying the fucking venue. Like people were they were having to like calm them down level of crazy. And it was mm. sort of a reminder though that like this was like you were saying, it's just sort of a youth culture thing that was happening. Mm. But in a way, it does feel distinct. And the American side feels distinct. And the British side to me I, yeah. I also seems like different from the American side. But then I also think about like, yeah, but under that umbrella of indie, like you had bands like Spoon or fucking um, Modest Mouse, who like we're not from New York, and had a very different vibe, but also got lumped into that sort of selling out versus not discussion. Mm-hmm. And I remember Isaac Brock doing an interview from Modest Mouse, basically being like, "No, selling out is when I try to write a song uh, that sounds like someone else, so I think it'll sell money." Me giving my record so it can be put on a on a commercial, if that means I don't have to wash dishes for some asshole as a job, I'm going to do it. And I remember like thinking to myself, like ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you people would they would be like, "No." artistic refusal i can't accept that whereas like by the early 2000s it seemed like that kind of made sense it was like yeah why not do that why not have float on Mm -hmm. being like a fucking car commercial like who cares yeah very now it seems like it's just gone down that road to the point where like everyone does it well a a manager
2: once said to me that as far as uk bands at least go oasis changed everything forever because after that everyone wanted to be the biggest band in the world because they'd seen that you could be Give or take. Um, yeah. Whereas in the 80s, uh, everyone prided themselves on, or the set, mm. late 70s, in being outside of the status quo. it be Joy Division, Orange Juice, all these people selling just enough records to get by, but actually making stuff quite far out. But after Oasis, and I guess Nirvana was the equivalent in, yeah. a, in America, having this kind of huge cultural influence, commercial influence. Um, mm prevalence and being the coolest people in the world even just for 5-10 yeah, minutes yeah. it's such a kind of it became such an attractive proposition that after that it's like everyone was gunning for that position. Mm. It's weird to me because
1: now that you think about uh, you, you just made me realize something which is that there isn't really an equivalent in my opinion of what the British phenomenon of landfill indie in the 2000s in America like not to the same degree but the post Nirvana sign, sign every fucking band mm. I mean I, I hey if if I'm remembering the Von Bondies right they had that single Come on Come on right yeah. no, that's no, a I'm fucking being good song and <laughs> good a good song we had a fist fight with Jack White yeah I, remember, the, yeah, yes, yeah I remember that because I was I was working at a student <laughs> Oh stu- fuck yeah I was yeah. working at a student mm. radio station and I remember that being part of the PR that the dude had gotten like that was in like the stuff we'd get about like he got his ass kicked by Jack White or like he got in a fight with Jack White or something um similar like I was thinking about you made me think of um God, who are the guys who did uh, oh, the Electric Six? I was right. that's about, the landfill in yeah, New yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, I was thinking, though. Gay uh, bar. The, yeah. yeah, Gay Bar and um, fire, High uh, fire fire, this fire, this and show Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bar, yeah. Danger, yeah. Uh, oh, Danger! Yeah. It's it's such a great, great fucking, fucking voice. I Fire the disco. It's it's very
2: like our Michael York voice. No, it's incredible. And our allegedly, voltage. it was Jack White doing the high vocal part, though
1: he denied it at the time. But don't you
4: want to know why we keep yeah. starting fires? allegedly like it Jack
1: White. Allegedly. Mm. Well, what made me what made me laugh though was I realized is that our landfill Uncredit. indie <laughs> he was beating up anyone who said that was him. Apparently, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> our, <laughs> our landfill indie was the post Nirvana sign every band from Seattle right. that, that gave Tatum. you sort of like mid nineties. Alt rock stuff, which is like kind of what I grew up on. I, I you know, started listening to mm. pop music radio, you know, when I was probably about 10 or 11. And like, yeah, if you bring up bands like Dishwalla or, um, I mean, I like Mud Honey, but I'm, yeah. that's
3: what we are get. Well, that, that sort of, and
1: everyone, and it,
3: cause everyone always talks about the, um, the sort of, um, you know, Velvet Underground phenomenon of, you know, mm. like, uh, uh, you know, everyone who went and saw of started a band and, and we have the Sex, the Sex Pistols Manchester show in 76 or 77 is probably the equivalent of that for that generation yeah and then probably it's like for what we're talking about it's like the strokes come on come along no one wears jeans the same and then <laughs> <laughs> everyone
1: buys a leather jacket <laughs> even if it looks <laughs> like
3: shit on them Yeah, although
2: it's worth noting because this is the kind of um uh what's the word for the believed story uh oh apocryphal in- <laughs> yeah yeah but Urban it's like legend yeah, because I think this is actually slightly apocryphal in that if you look at early pictures of The Strokes, they're wearing bootcut jeans. They weren't, they <laughs> uh, weren't wearing from, super skinny jeans. They went jeans. through that divorce early. In 2001, yeah. you couldn't buy skinny jeans. I oh, know, because in 2003, mm. I couldn't buy skinny jeans. And I went up to someone who um, turned out to be... in second-hand stores. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah, in second-hand stores. We couldn't buy them on the high street. And I remember going up to the person mm. who ended up, I've realized later, Dev Hines, test icicles, Blood Orange, etc. Where did you get your jeans? How do you get these jeans so tight? And he said, go to H&M, buy a normal pair of jeans, put them on inside out, do safety pins down the side to fit them to your leg, then turn them back the normal way, so you've safety pinned them inside out and then put them on. And that's what people were doing to get jeans that tight.
3: That's a jeans hack, right Just there. Nice and horrendously tight. And, because you uh, couldn't get them, you was, yeah. you'd
2: have to go to like some stall in in Camden and get some like weird ones. They weren't on the mm. high street, yeah. and uh, there
3: was a shop in there was a secondhand jeans place in High Park in Leeds. And there was this guy in there who basically treated anyone my age with like extraordinary contempt. But that was kind of what you wanted, because because mm, you yeah. wanted to go in there and basically feel like an idiot, and then come <laughs> out there with those like. With just like the tightest jeans. yeah.
2: Because actually early pictures of the Strokes, they looked amazing, don't get me wrong, but they had some quite out there styles. You'd have like Albert Hammond Jr. would be wearing a, a belt matched to his tie and they'd both be like, you know light blue with then a kind of boot cut jeans and a suit jacket. It was a little bit Jeremy mm. Clarkson actually in its, mm. in its style, a little the bit... biggest um, band in the
3: world. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true because also at the same sort of time you've got Shoreditch culture, like what, what mm. pe- became hipster culture yeah. is... And eventually drugstore culture. ...is, is happening mm. yeah. um, and, and at the beginning that was, yeah, the sort of thin the Shoreditch thin haircut which was like... Um, you know the kind of um, basically uh, that sort of early Jude Law haircut, if you can imagine it. The sort mm. of basically like a kind of mohawk, a really but, shit but mohawk made with like shockwaves gel. Yeah, and just, yeah, and and then oh, like shit, suit yeah. jackets mm. and jeans. And the jeans probably at the beginning. Mm. It's true at the beginning, the jeans were not tight. You, um, can, edit, you can edit
2: this bit out, but it's yeah. <laughs> this is probably the yeah, most important. Bit. Always say, you know, the Strokes uh, right. skinny jeans. They did eventually wear skinny jeans, but it didn't. They were almost too d- soon because you know they. They first started playing in 2000. Obviously, the album was out mm. in 2001. Modern AGP, which was the first EP where they re-recorded a few of those songs that came out in Rough Trade. I think that must have been... Beginning two,
3: 2001. January
2: was 2001. Was it? Oh, that was one, right.
3: Mm. But right at the beginning. Before but
0: I, 9-11. Crucial. mentioned 9-11 from- did
2: the jeans. That's yes. what happened.
0: <laughs> After that, they were like, we can't have jeans this fast. I think this might be a good point, actually. We should discuss a little bit our like, indie landfill Pedigree, because I feel like it's. I feel like we're probably all coming at this from slightly. so
3: so, but also because the the point that before Fred fact checked my mm. kind of a uh, glib, glib throwaway comment about jeans... But yeah, don't be glib I, on this show, I, 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 I guess, Oscar. I guess. I guess the point is, yeah. the, the the thing is, it's like it's like there's always that effect where. You have a few sort of originators at the beginning, and then you have like this procession of things that happen afterwards. Mm. Although, of course, we all remember that like when Block Party came out, everyone was being like, oh, this is Gang of Four all over again. When Franz Ferdinand came out, when I first saw Franz Ferdinand, I was like, I really like these guys. It's exactly like, you know, some 80s band. There was always like, and in terms of what Fred said about Oasis and like being the biggest band in the world, it felt like, Bands like the Libertines, Fr- Franz Ferdinand, Block Party—the sort of early first-wave indie bands—but you know, meant a lot to me. Meant a lot to Fred. Um, that they were sort of trying to do a bit of both. They're trying to be. Mm. They were probably trying to be quite big bands, but they were also trying to be to to sort of be credible mm. alternative yeah. musicians. Yeah. They, they like wanted, their
1: heroes. They wanted yeah. to be the yeah exactly like the sort of cachet of a band like Magazine or Gang of Four or Talking Heads or something like that but then also beyond major labels or like big mm. enough to be promoted you know not, not have the fate of being like yeah you make incredible music but like at the time you don't make any money from it at all, we, right? and it's also yeah.
3: all before the financial crash of yeah. 2008 Right, so the narrative's starting to form now yeah.
2: when the genes <laughs> start to widen again yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you make a, you a good point that's a difference between say the strokes and television who people say oh they just yeah yeah you know, yeah, yeah they mm. could they could simultaneously sat, be cool, sound like something cool and be the biggest thing in the mm. world. So yeah. much of
1: their appeal and maybe you got this in the UK, I, I imagine you did and I, as an American, I'm not from New York, got it too, was that like the strokes, the music they were playing but also the look, the feel, the attitude was like you now get to pretend that you are downtown in 1977 yeah. or something like that. You're getting to hear you know Richard mm. Hell and the Voidoids or television or Terry Ork Records kind of shit. You know what I mean? Like mm. all these things but it was just, it's like a reflection of that You know, it's, it's, it's like a, I don't know what the right word here would be. It's sort of, it's doing like a tribute act in a way. Like it's great music. I literally liked it, but like so much of the appeal was like, oh, this is the logical continuation of like Lou Reed looking like a badass. I mean,
3: I remember, I remember the first Razorlight single, Stumble and Fall coming out. Me and my Mm -hmm. friend Hannah dancing around our flat. Saying it's like television, it's exactly like television. We love it.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think this is probably a
0: good point because we like we touched on earlier the idea that like indie landfills is kind of like slightly embarrassing period. Uh, I mean, I at the time was like the ages of like probably like 13 to 16. Alright, mate, we get it. Which, yeah, no, no. But that was like, that was an
4: embarrassing
0: enough period of my life that like this is the least embarrassing thing about it. Like the fact that I like these bands is like, I'm like, this is a better thing to remember than like the haircuts we were attempting, <laughs> some of the outfits that we were attempting. I mean, that whole matching belt and tie thing was giving me some fucking flashbacks. Like,
1: yeah. uh, yeah. Big, um, the, the big Tommy Hilfiger jeans with the little thing with the pad, like the painter painter loop is coming back into fashion and like vintage mm. and that shit's killing me because that's exact same thing. I was thirteen when that stuff hit its peak. So I absolutely understand not yeah. wanting necessarily to be reminded oh, of man, it. fucking wearing like a neon yellow belt and like a skinny mm. tie. Like oh yeah. The, shit. the
2: interesting thing is good that is feeding into this is we t- talked about France Ferdinand and Interpol mm and I, I kind of see Franz Ferdinand almost more within the American universe of it, because mm. you had these incredibly good-looking, well-dressed bands making this very tight, dark, mm. arguably like intellectual music. Fast forward a couple of years in the UK and you're having music that sounds like Lonnie Donegan with people dressed like farmers who've been up mm. for three days. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it kind of melt, it gave way into something different quite mm. quickly that was no longer necessarily about being tight and smart, but somehow merged with this kind of let it all hang out attitude. You know, had people playing tambourine yeah. on stage as their full-time job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Bez of their era. It's always there's always a Bez in every era. The <laughs> Bez man theory of history.
1: We <laughs> should
0: um we should talk about some like real fucking landfill shit then. Cause I know, we've mentioned Razorlight. Um Razorlight are definitely one of the bands that I feel like stand up better than some of the others. Like recalling the kooks is like a more Difficult. The Kooks and the Fratellis, I feel like, are a real low point for me.
2: Uh, Although, arguably, the Fratellis made the song that encapsulated it all as far as landfill indies concerned yeah. with Chelsea Dago. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. You don't need to know the band name, the song name. Yeah, there are lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that. That's as close as the UK got to a Seven Nation Army moment of like <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> a riff that could be sung at football stadiums for 50 mm. years
3: after. Um, but it was like, I, I I sort of feel like I've, neither of us have quite described the sort of... so it, just to sort of very just to kind of bring us into that era, yeah. Like, you can play us a song before, before the, stro- before the mm. strokes, like, 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 like British India was in dire straits, right? And and it wasn't dire straits, unfortunately. No, it R- was, the joke
2: was implied, you didn't y- need it to explain was, it. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
3: let's do that again. Um, so you know, it's like Travis and big and and people like that. I oh. mean, and 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 so you know, you had a Hoxon Finn. He did yeah, but, but uh, the trousers were wide. Right right. They were very Travis, wide.
2: Travis
0: are trying to come back and uh, absolute radio for s- shilling for them as so hard as they, they can. Some people went away. <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> hey listen you know
3: I've got I got two ears and a heart. Um, <laughs> and and then it's like and and then sort of you know if we fast forward a few years yet yeah, so, suddenly it's this it, it you know it's alternative and then it's and then you you get to a sort of Fratelli's point where it's mm. it's just ubiquitous, mm,
4: mm.
3: like it. But it but it, but there's a few years might we might call them the sort of you know sort of two thousand two, three, four, five the sort of Libertines block party, Franz Ferdinand years where it it still felt quite alternative. Like being yeah. indie mm. into indie music didn't feel like yeah. I guess this is a. It wasn't everywhere on the high street, but I'm not sure if. Maybe I'm just saying that because that's, you know, sort of.
1: The thing that I would say is it struck me that that scene and like those bands and then the progressions from that in the UK stayed centered on guitar rock and on the sort of indie rock band kind of thing. Whereas in the US, the thing that we're not maybe talking about is that while the strokes had a huge cultural impact, like new metal was bigger in terms of selling records. And in terms of like what people were hearing on the radio, especially in the US where mm. uh, radio stations from the early 90s onward were starting to get acquired by big conglomerates that more or less standardized the playlists everywhere. You know, a band like System of a Down, for example, probably got heard on the radio far more than people even listened to The Strokes in mm. 2001, 2002. And similarly... And um, you know, they stood the test of time. I, I think about... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think about bands like like Puddle of Mud or Stained or I mean Slipknot were bigger, but like those kinds of things. I know they had some crossover in the UK, but like that was a big, you know, the sort of hangover from Creed and bands like that, that was actually like probably pushing more record sales in the US. Mm. Um, And like a lot of the really big cultural stuff that was happening around music, um, like if you're talking about major label stuff, there was a lot more stuff from rap artists. There's a lot more stuff from things like, for example, Justin Timberlake. And the UK obviously had sort of like glossy pop music. But Mm. I felt from afar, like what was getting pushed in music journalism and in record sales was way more sort of like what led to say Arctic Monkeys is like the sort of pinnacle of that. But like that whole kind Of milieu, and like it was different in America, there so, were some, but not as much. So, so. I
3: remember, I, and I want to. Fred's mm. going to hopefully talk for a lot longer than me after this. And I, it's important to say that Fred is not just an expert, he is a protagonist in this story. I as, wouldn't go uh, that as, far as the lead singer of a number of critically acclaimed indie bands. Yeah, um, you, might,
0: you might have known him, him as Johnny Burrell I don't remember if there was any critical yeah.
3: critically yeah. acclaimed, critically defamed. I mean, you know, what's the difference mm. in 2004? I remember seeing the Arctic Monkeys. I don't think they'd released an album, but MySpace right. was happening, Yeah, right? Oh, and, fuck, yeah, friends with Tom. And, 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 and it was that weird thing of I had, never exp- I had never gone to a gig where the band had not released an album or even, I mean, they'd maybe released a couple of singles. I'd never gone to a gig and seen a whole audience singing every song back to them. like And it was, it was quite a small gig. But it was that thing, it was it was like, oh, what fucking hell, like this is all this is people are just listening to this music on MySpace and they're Mm. they're singing it back at this band and it you know, it changed everything.
2: Well there's a few things to talk about there kind of two threads. One is that this is in reality the early days of the internet and broadband after mm. napster but before worth noting youtube which didn't come out till what 2006 yeah, i think yeah, um, five six, six, yeah and um so a the internet's a big part of this story mm. but before we get to that in terms of what you were saying about the british media and its eyes still on this essentially quite retro music mm. i think it's worth noting that as far as the industry is concerned if i think about uh, friends who work in the music industry a and r someone like Imran Ahmed, who signed Vampire Weekend to XL, British A&R, he was at um, Nebworth, the Oasis concert, and I'm sure he's Mm. one of many British A&Rs who were coming of age during the 90s, uh, and British music journalists who were essentially still, and British radio programmers, etc., still kind of caught up in a mindset. At the time, it seemed like the gap between oasis and blah towards radiohead and travis was an eternity but in reality we're only talking about between 96 and 97 yeah. and 2001 <laughs> short time yeah. it's almost no time at all we've had longer pandemics you know yeah <laughs> so it was a relatively short time and i think mm. it's it's easy to to think of the strokes as the first band of the noughties i'm going to put forward the theory here that we actually think of them as the final band of the 90s because i've heard mm. it said that um the 90s someone said that, that the 90s ended with uh 9 11 that like yeah, 2001 yeah, yeah. you know that was the real
4: turn yeah, of the century yeah, the it wasn't, the 90s
2: yeah it wasn't the millennium dome opening up we still <clears> had <throat> 2000 2001 i mean i was only 12 or something 13 but i remember from what i remember it still felt a bit
1: it still had that yeah, I, mean, kind I, of- I think about bands i was i turned 15 in 1999 i remember like a perfect circle being huge. I remember mm. in the summer of 2000, right before I got my driver's license, or the spring rather, that when I would ride the bus to school, I would hear Hire by Creed twice on the way to school and twice on the way home because it was all over the fucking radio. And you think about just a few years later, so much changed. And the stuff that was on the radio was uh, both them, for one, pushing old Metallica, but also playing stuff like uh, System of a Down or um, not Creed, um, Stain or Korn. Or uh, you know a, lo- a little bit of hangover from like the Limp Bizkit heyday and stuff mm. like that. Um, but yeah, I take your point that like it was more kind of the end of the '90s, and then what came after was I'm, it's weird. I should be able to give you a really good name of like inarguably what was huge, but I can't think of. And maybe you got an answer here of like an American equivalent of Arctic Monkeys in terms of a band that started like that and got so popular. Uh, I really don't have one. I mean, no. Spoon did. Better, but they don't sell anywhere near as many well, records. Well, Kings
3: of Leon kind of
1: became yeah, that. yeah, yeah that's yeah, a good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think. Yeah. King,
3: mm. I mean, Maroon Five. Yeah.
1: yeah, Maroon Five to me, their initial Maybe vibe was a way band. more a pop band. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I mm. mean, I
3: suppose basically the, ki- the the Killers and the Kings of Leon. The Killers, of- no, the Killers mm. is perfect. Yes, yeah. that's the good but, example. But even at the uh, but right at the beginning when the Killers came when the, I think I saw them on their first mm. British tour and they were again they fitted into that sort of first first new wave of 21st century indie where you could see that they were clearly taking from in this case, you know, eighties kind of synth rock bands. Mm. I mean, as in, as in a lot of the conversation was them about them being derivative of an authentic alternative music, rather than them being a potentially absolutely massive stadium band, even though they were definitely
1: going for it. I heard an anecdote that Brandon mm. Flowers, that one of their uh, one of their musicians in the band, the original lineup, quit because he's like, "I'm tired of doing this Duran Duran shit." Yeah, and, right. uh, which yeah. I mean, probably regrets that decision, but yeah. you know, that's how life goes.
2: Although you could argue that they were genuinely um, had a more cultural um, beginning or bent, whatever the word. Uh, they're, you know, brought up in Las Vegas. How many people can say that? Mm. You know, their parents, well, a lot of them were waitresses and waiters on the strip. Like, he, he, Brandon Flowers mentions that in the book, um, uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom, when he t- they talk about how the killers in Kings of Leon ended up being bigger than the Strokes. Mm. They said, well, you know, our parents were waitresses on the strip. We we had nowhere to go back yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. worth noting the Strokes, you know, they're essentially celebrity children. Yes. Julian mm. Kaspankis' dad... Um, John Casablanca started Elite Models. Yeah. There's a very dodgy kind of like Ghislaine Maxwell adjacent documentary on. Most
1: of them met in a mm. private school in Switzerland. Like right. it's a different vibe than if Albert your Hammond
3: Junior. Yeah. Was Albert Hammond Senior's son. So John, Ca- I mean John, Ca- I mean it, it, there's a real like tale of two Casablancas, isn't there? Because it's because it's <laughs> like John Casablancas is, I mean, essentially, um, I mean if if. I mean, he did get sort of Weinsteined in the end, didn't he? But been w- w- watching this documentary, documentary
2: that, that, was, that I think he made, because he narrates it, he's now passed away, but it's worth watching So it's on Netflix. It's called Casablanca's The Man Who Loved Women.
4: It's the- <laughs> <it's the> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for. a good billing. Ooh, and yeah. it's
2: basically him talking over like stock footage and old photos for an hour and a half about how he started a model a- agency essentially to shag younger and younger women, leaving mm. each wife and uh, yeah. ch- children as time goes on and it it gives it definitely gives an interesting cultural context to Julian Casablancas because it's easy to say oh well this is just some who wants to hear a rich guy moaning there was clearly some a, some darkness or something yeah. for where they
1: came and from and Brandon Flowers as I understand it like, mm. was raised Mormon and, and like that's obviously like a weird thing to come from to then become a non-Mormon rock singer like in the sense that if you know anything about Mormons, especially in the West, like there are Mormon bands, like people who are Mormons who go into pop music, make music for Mormons that has like Mormon themes and stuff. Wow. So he's kind of like, in a way, sort of a pariah. And if I'm not mistaken, they got it's their the next band. big thing, Mormon rock. Check it out. That's who We're putting our money on the table. Here. The more man who loved women. <laughs> <laughs> they got their band name from the fake band that's playing in the video for the New Order song, Crystal. Oh, like wow. so, in a way, it's just sort of like the killers. Like I think they wear that in their sleeve. That like there's a certain extent to which like there is an admiration for British music.
3: Oh well, we mm. all. Thought, but that's kind of what I mean. Like 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 those bands were. They were all. They were all like obviously um, influenced by these kind of titans of alternative indie legend you know yeah. like New Order and particularly with you know, with Brandon Flowers the way he sang where it was like people were like wait is, is this guy in English you know um, but also like and and I think what Fred says is you know because I think you know you like I've sort of got a lot of time for them and for the Kings of Leon I mean I have a, a, a lot of fondness for the Kings of Leon even though like they sort of deformed into this kind of monstrous stadium rock band but there was that like and also with 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 Brandon Flowers, it reminds me of something. a friend A friend of mine who a, a friend of mine was with Paul Banks from Interpol. Yeah. on his twenty third birthday. Name drop. And she told me that Paul Banks was like twenty mm. three. Time to get serious. <laughs> 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 Brandon Flowers sings about you know I'm so much older than I can take. Like these guys, they were ambitious, right? You know, they were. You know, it was like it was like right. Yeah, we're you know we it's it's it's. Like, yeah, we like New Order, but also we want to be on the stadium. Yeah. On the, on it's the- just so
1: funny to me because I remember Interpol, there was a thing where, I mean, <laughs> Interpol always made me wonder, like, if they took the sort of, like, jaded, disaffected thing so far, they actually just didn't enjoy themselves because I saw them live. I mean, they did not seem to be having a good time. The Blonde Red had opened for them and fucking completely upstaged them. Wow. Like, it was wild to me. I, was, I mean, granted, it was in, like, fucking Cincinnati, Ohio, so it's not, like, a really glamorous place to be playing. But, yeah, man, mm. like, they they were very, very into sort of like wearing Mm -hmm. the influences on their sleeves and sort of being like, yes, this is like, we don't mind, or at least like we're comfortable with this association that we're going to sound like Joy Division. But then it's like,
3: I mean, I remember a friend of mine basically being disappointed that they weren't, you know, vampires from New York. Like, actual. <laughs> you know. Was, that, that sort of Turn of the Bright Lights photo shoot is an amazing piece of myth-making where they're sort of photographed by the Brooklyn Bridge and it's dark grey oh, yeah, sky. Yeah, yeah, like everything yeah. is kind of, everything is sort of revolve. you know, everything is kind of, seems to be looming above them. It's quite like Gotham-like. I mean, again, you know, it's a band that I loved. I don't think that, I never mm. saw them, I never saw I never felt like they kind of lived up to it live. And I remember friends of yeah. mine who played with them would be like, you know, I remember some friends who played with them who were really enamored with them. And they sort of taught, you, you know, they were trying to get them to tell stories about, the, you know, the good old days of Viper room in New York and everything. And, and Paul Banks was just like, you know, and they were all just like, yeah, yeah. I was like, those were some times.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. So, yeah, and to now to zone in on the, the,
2: landfill thing just mm. so we can finally try and um de- it, define get into it. it is that so yeah 2001 the strokes in 2003 the first libertines album came out yeah i think it's fair to say that Ray's light probably are to the libertines what the libertines are to the strokes if we're thinking it was some kind of like galaxy mm. um where it's almost like an, a half-life of each time yeah, you removed yeah. a, by a band the power weakens or i think johnny awards are Great songwriter. <laughs> he was originally in the Libertines for a yeah. short while. Oh, right. Um, okay. Went to school with the bass player, John Hassel. They had some crossover.
3: <laughs> Same school I went to. Oh, wow.
4: Yeah. <laughs> for girls, was it? I thought, maybe at some we, point.
3: We, so, so but, but, but it's funny because the reputation, so John, Johnny Burrell and John Hassel from the Libertines were, were maybe, we maybe overlapped for about a year. They were a few years, four or five years older than me, maybe. But the stories that I used to hear about, John, I knew a bit um well, only all the only on side of the table i mean i mean yeah, it, is. which is ridiculous considering <laughs> how, um, um, but he um it, I, I mean the, the problem with this is like is is basically trying to work out what what is and isn't going to be libelous um <laughs> there, there was let's just say that there was a culture in the school among that that sort of age group Uh-oh. of 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 like shooting up in the toilets at school. Those are the UK school shootings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and before and, turning the needle on himself, and it's like yeah. these guys, these guys were, you know, they they they, they um they uh, they weren't messing around. Like they Jesus. were. Uh, oh, so you were led to. Think? Uh, so so I um, yeah. So I was yeah a, London so, day so, schools are so was quite alleged. something, aren't I they? I mean, but Johnny but Johnny Brill was always like a. I mean, I I also remember him. I remember like seeing him somewhere. He was wearing a white shirt with one button done up, and white jeans. I mean, he, you know. And then there was that period when he was going out with Kirsten Dunst, and he bought a motorbike. Well, that's the thing.
2: So, so he was a myth yeah, and maker. that kind of hysteria <laughs> yeah, 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 around yeah. things. I, I think wasn't that
3: infamously at a
2: music
0: festival where there was mud everywhere, and he was in an all-white outfit. I seem to recall yeah. this, Johnny. Braille and it was moment. testament to
2: the time that he could end up with someone yeah. like Kirsten Dunst, and they were all yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. Matt Bellamy with, uh, um. Well, you had Jack White and Renee Zellweger, but you had all these kind of funny mm. crossover couples. Mm. But so around the time of of Ray's Light and Franz Ferdinand, who it's worth noting were having top forty singles. Which now yeah. to imagine a an indie top band 10 having singles. top ten, top twenty. Even top five singles yeah, I mean, is
1: insane. You know I mean? they, they made yeah. a kids Bop version of "Take Me Out." If that tells you like how big of a of a thing it was, and it was a staple. In yeah, so was we're talking crazy. about
2: like. bona fide hit songs, and then um, you know, "Raise the Light," "Golden Touch," etc. Yeah. So then, what you had was all the the major. Labels. Trying to explain that to
0: an American girl, just Sunday night, and she had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> 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 was like a
2: good Sunday. Um, yeah. So you're trying to tell she's her she's got
0: enough. She's got too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's is <just> simple
2: stuff. <laughs> the major labels then just start, as they always do, going to overdrive, trying to sign whatever mm. the next thing is. And it was a time where, I wouldn't say it was easy to get a record deal, but it, there was a lot of people making it look easy, given the mm. quality of the music. And um, mm. I was in a band at the time that was probably one of the few, the few to not get a record deal, which shows how <laughs> underachieving we were. All these bands started getting signed. The quality started to go down. People just thought, "When we might have the next Take Me Out. We might have mm. the next Golden Touch. And so you get, you know, whatever Raise like, "Word to the Libertines, you had dogs to do that, to raise like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
3: And then these bands, it, it's important to say, like, these bands, some of these bands are getting, like, record, record deals, like hundreds of thousands of bands. Like, this is... You know, and then they're ending up. Set- yeah, some of them potentially even seven-figure deals
2: for for artists we've never heard of. But mm. you know, this is this is often how the music industry operates. And so you yeah, get yeah. all these kind of two-bit, two-part players that we know now mm. zooming forward weren't the real deal. But at the time, you just get this this thirst for it in the in the um, magazines, in the radio, and in festival bookings. Yeah. this is a point. I mean, festivals are big now. Kind of
0: music Dogecoin.
2: You get all these spin-offs. And it was was still before the internet, so it hadn't quite been democratized. Mm. Say what you like about Spotify as a platform, at least we can use it to see what people kind of are listening to. Um, So we get some idea that you can see pockets of culture happening around the world this mm. was still very top-down music industry
1: yeah i mean f- to get a copy of up the bracket in 2003 where i'm from like you either had to go to a specialty store that where there was like one of in the big city near us or use something like napster or uh, mm. like a forum i was on a forum that had people hosting ftp servers and i was able to get turn on the bright lights and um yeah up the bracket that way but like Nobody was listening, to this right? Thing. Whereas now, like, if something becomes—I mean, I remember trying to hear the first. <laughs> you had to ch- develop skills only known now to like child pornography and I <laughs> <laughs> well, think mm-hmm. about, about like the music, first Shins yeah. record, which I don't even like, but I remember hearing all the hip the hype around it. Like to get a copy of that was fucking impossible in 2000 2001 So like, you know, now if you read an article, you can go on Spotify and typically you can find the stuff, or you can get it on YouTube. Like it's just it's trying to explain that to people who didn't grow up with that. But, like, yeah, you there was an extent to which what you heard on the radio or what you could buy in the store was what you would get. And that was it. Mm. But it's, it's, I mean, I think like your
3: analogy for Americans, Nate, your analogy to uh, Washington, Seat- Washington, State, Seattle, the, the Pacific Northwest in the time of Nirvana is yeah. exactly right. Basically. Mm. And it sort of says, it tells you something about how markets operate, about how kind of industry executives operate. Um, you know, which is basically to say, let's try and find the counterfeit version.
1: Find the next again version and again, this, and, again yeah.
3: and again and again. Well, you were you were at university in Leeds at
2: the time, yeah. probably in Leeds alone. There were about ten bands with record deals, you right? And, and the there, was mini, there was a mini, there was a mini version. Okay, yeah. so the, and again, a, to hit singles, yeah, yeah, both, yeah, big, both big both hit singles. This, but there yeah. was a,
3: so there was a mini, a mini version of that happened in Leeds. Um, the Dance Ka- to the radio, that label, yeah. To, yeah, yeah. The, Ka- the Kaiser Chiefs. For a long period of time in Leeds, were the first band on the bill for every. So, Franz Ferdinand would would come to play. I mean, I so I remember this exact bill: Franz Ferdinand headlining, a band from London called Ludes. great band. Mm. Me and Fred, uh, me and Fred have a lot of love for that band. Uh, mm. And then the Kaiser Chiefs opening up. Kaiser Chiefs were that band for a long time, and it was they were this band that everyone. On the Leeds indie team was like was like oh yeah it's them again and then Mm. and then and then it happened for them. I remember liking and and they became absolutely enormous and it it wasn't something that again look there are people who know this much better than me but I would say it wasn't really something that that anyone around them particularly saw happening. Mm. It it was like it was like
2: necessarily even enjoyed on a local. Oh no no! And there was so much, resentment. and <laughs> so mean, up, there was music that ended up being enjoyed on a national scale before it was essentially some quite cultureless artists. And I, I've got time for the kaiju, so I'm not talking about them. But you've got mm, these bands who we who, are talking about, you know, them. Kooks for example. They mm. were a band who it wasn't a rise,
3: a slow. Were they London? Rise. They felt southern, but I, I I think they yeah. Or I don't know if they were organic to counties. anything. Like the Kooks actually <laughs> felt like another. They felt like a sort of materialized they were a in school. Either. Well, like products, weren't they? Well,
2: it's a... I think they would went to Bedell. some of them so yeah, I mean borderline oh, stage school yeah. we, um, we we love a
0: fucking boarding school with no rules that's a great place to become an indie band the, well
2: there you go it was and yeah. they were and yeah. so, uh, what's the first album called like right side on wrong inside side it, off, inside in inside out oh there yeah. you go, oh, go. We go. now we're getting into my era and again and I mean Naive was probably a top five single but this the interesting thing was
0: I got laid for the first time as a direct result of that song so that's basically that was
2: Sunday, well, Sunday when uh, you're yeah, yeah, talking yeah,
3: about rose I but this 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 thing about local scenes reminds me that like in that sort of 2002 three era, like so the Kaiser Chiefs, the 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 Kai, there there was a band called Ten Thousand Things who uh, the the lead singer was a guy called Sam Riley who went on to be an, mm. be a quite successful actor well, he in he Control. He he played Ian Curtis in Control. That band they were going to be. It was it was them and the band called the Cribs who became who who, oh, who really, yeah. really did make a make a long lasting career out of it. But Ten Thousand Things was like the big Leeds sort of hype, hype band, you know, like mm. they're going to be the Leeds Libertines, um, and there was there, there was a lot of sort of excitement about that in in Leeds. Um, they uh, when their first album was about to come out, the press release talked uh, uh, at length about. How many gigs Sam Riley had been propositioned at? Uh, <laughs>
4: uh,
3: their song Titanium includes the lines, um, I think I need titanium boxer shorts. I just can't control all these sexy thoughts. I think that might be it. Oh, absolutely. Wow. got also- quite a, quite a like, right said Fred yeah. energy. There's, there's about also it. a song it called Eating's the- eating. Not Sounds a bit
2: Chernobyl with the titanium boxer shorts. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that, 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 um, that, that, uh, my, 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 my my now partner was uh, in a relationship with their guitarist. Um, I didn't know this was a 10,000 Things podcast. She, no. <laughs> her, 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 One of her big indie claims to fame is that the dog at the Hawley Arms, a legendary indie pub in Camden, was named after her. Wow. Your yeah. girlfriend? Yeah, Moena. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, the, the 10,000 Things album comes out. It's not it, quite Golden Touch, but it, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Amy yeah. glee- Winehouse probably petted that dog multiple it, times. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> It's given one out of ten by. <laughs> I was going to say something else there, but thought. it. Oh, the album was given one oh, out of ten I by the NME, dog was given one out. Which of ten. was, yeah. which is at a time when it that really meant a lot. Yeah. that really meant a lot, and it basically ended them. And there were all these bands and people in Leeds who were basically saying mm. to these guys, "Oh man, I'm really sorry." And behind their backs, they were like, "Fucking yes." Yeah, mm. because it was because because there was that very weird cross. It was, it was like when we're all together, we're all together. But if one of these bands becomes really successful, then yeah. it, 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 everything feels a bit different no,
0: I, no one in the arts in britain could relate to that kind of tall poppy syndrome there's no
3: i have never encountered this in my career the number of podcasters
1: who are gunning for milo you'd you be surprised you joke oh, i bet man podcasters open mic comedians <laughs> i'm wondering too with like tastemaker stuff like the nme and other music journalism outlets like do you feel as though uh in this era you saw their influence wayne or were they actually like when the hype was being generated? Like was that driving success like of these bands? It was really important at that point because to me, I think of Pitchfork in America, and that's the only analog. Mm. I don't think they had that much influence over here, but in the U.S., like a band could be pulled out of nowhere, and if Pitchfork gave them a big review, they were they were like I think of Architecture in Helsinki. I was talking to Milo about them, like a band from fucking Melbourne Australia that just happened to tour in America and open for some bands in New York and like they got like an 8.9 on their first record their first I feel like there's never record. been a music publication
0: in Britain that has the wank factor of Pitchfork Well and Pitchfork's like, better
1: now than it used to be but I mean I was I used to read
0: it I, a lot when I was at a heyday I remember and, like, reading like Q magazine when I was a teenager but it definitely didn't
1: have that like cool factor that no, something had, like it, pitchfork it, it it had and... so much influence that it would make the or like Travis Morrison from the Dismemberment Plan put out a solo mm. album they gave it a 0.0 and like it suddenly had negative sales, like more people were taking it back to the store than were buying it. <laughs> so like, ashamed. Like they they could absolutely make or break careers. And I wasn't sure if there was an equivalent <laughs> had no to that. I no idea that some of us owned a copy of Costello no, Music. but, they would but have I think we better. at
2: the time... Uh, yeah, Enemy wasn't quite on that scale, although mm. I do remember that one out of 10 review you mentioned. But I think, obviously, we've always had the BBC here. And and the, the main difference when it comes to indie culture in the mm. UK and America is that America has enough towns and cities that you can tour from one end to the yeah. other and then start again. Essentially, a UK tour will be 10 to 20 dates in terms of you've there's not that many places you can play. So unless you are selling records, it's quite hard to maintain being an underground band here mm. whereas in america there's always been a, a history of that because you yeah, can yeah, yeah. just about yeah. tour and there's the history of college the college circuit yeah. etc yeah, yeah, yeah. so mm. i think you'd it, here you're either underground or you make it but the, the space in between isn't doesn't really exist yeah. unless you're going to be a band who plays every now and again and uh you know works your main job which there are lots of great bands like that but at this 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 point in history there was all this money being thrown around the bbc's playing all this, mm. these bands they're playing so many bands that they have to start another radio station radio 6 as a spin off to play even mm. more bands um to play even smaller indie bands because the big commercial indie stuff is so big and i think yeah. for a lot of um the journalists and the the tastemakers at the time it was Happy dates. They were like, oh, okay, yeah. well, now we can just finally listen to kind of trad rock, forever. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing will ever yeah. change. The end of history, or whatever yeah, Gordon Brown yeah, called yeah. it. No, not Lamfalvy, but uh, uh, the end of boom and Pas- Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> <yeah, yeah. laughs> <Yeah, you
4: laughs>
0: Fukiyama and Brown. And, and yeah. of- I mean, I
4: mean,
3: the- Francis Fukiyama said that bigoted woman who <laughs> who put me with her. And, and-, and meanwhile, uh, of course, like I, I was just thinking about that show, the sort of Strokes, Kings of Leon show that i saw in argentina i then went and saw at the same festival i went and saw dizzy rascal in a tent it was right at the beginning mm. of him and because of course at the same time grime is happening in yeah. in britain and that probably ends up being from from our standpoint now that probably ends up being the most culturally Sig- musically yeah. significant movement of 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 you know of of the years that we are talking about and of mm. course for for obvious reasons it's talked about and received by the mainstream in a, in a yeah. completely different way um but of course at the same of course having said that dizzy becomes a massive massive star
4: mm.
0: Yeah, because prior to that, like, kind of landfill indie period, I would say that the main music I was exposed to, rather than being, like, the Strokes or the kind of indie precursors, was more like UK Garage. Yeah, right, yeah, It was always going yeah, on sure. in Essex at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas, well, the, the, yeah.
3: there was a big, the big music Craig of, David of and my, and of sort of, and all that shit. like, of the late 90s, like, for me, when I was 16, mm. 17, 18, it was Garage. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm.
0: Um, I feel like I really want to talk about the the like, the like later period of Indie Yeah, I want to know what happened
1: to this because we've talked about the I, early part, but
0: yeah. Yeah, this is like my like older teen years where I feel like there was this real division between like there was these indie bands that were huge like the Kaiser Chiefs, the Fratellis with their one album and one song with no lyrics and uh, even like the Claxons came in a bit later and were kind of big that, for a bit. And was
2: maybe a change. They represented a change maybe.
0: Yeah, but then you also at the same time you had these bands who were like pretty big But were like, and still are now kind of as almost culturally irrelevant as the others, but at the time were considered cooler, like the Maccabees. Mm. I remember like
2: the Maccabees being like... Well, that's a sensitive one for Oscar. He probably doesn't want to speak ill of them because they had...
3: Friend, some I, I, can, t- I can talk about the Maccabees but the lead singer of the Maccabees is a very close friend of mine <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to even talk shit about them But I just remember distinctly the Maccabees
0: being like this band where like If you wanted to fuck the hot girls at your sixth form college You were like going to Maccabees gigs But actually when you look back on which it now just, The Maccabees don't really feel that which much is cooler so funny Because than, the like, American the- equivalent of
1: that was absolutely John Mayer which is just a completely well, different run. I, 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 I know you do. <laughs> half, <laughs> half,
4: my, half of my heart. <laughs> my that's buddy. <laughs> my all-time favorite. One of my best musician, friends John when Mayer. he was in high
1: school in Georgia, they had a huge party mm. plan. They made Jello shots. They got a keg. They invited all the girls. No girls showed up because they forgot they'd scheduled the party on the same night as a John Mayer concert. And all the girls—it was literally all dudes because it was he was that popular. Like that, it's
3: just—that yeah. is cultural reach.
1: Yeah, and that's
2: that. That's sort of like that's what, hegemony. But that's the thing. It's, it's testament to how how white uh, this genre was that yeah. there are all these genres within genres. So mm. Someone might like the Mystery Jets, and someone mm. else might like the. The Ordinary Boys. Or the, the Ordinary, ordinary boys. boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I feel like we have to talk about and, and that And at the time, it would seem like such a gulf. Oh, no, they, they're yeah, into yeah, stuff like yeah. The Ordinary yeah. Boys. I'm into cool stuff like The Mystery Jets or whatever. Mm. There were so many bands and so many gigs going on. At the time, there yeah. were all these venues in central London. that I remember in my teen years going out three, four times a week to see gigs that were five pounds or one pound off with a fly or whatever it is, it, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. reflected in the culture and the club nights going on. Mm. People going to, punters going to club nights, watching bands, going home and starting their own bands based on what they've seen, a kind of praxis mm. or whatever, if I want a better word. And uh, it was so, there was just so much of it. You could throw a stone and hit five pubs with live music or club nights, et cetera. Mm. I don't know what the point I was making here, but more that you were saying, yeah, the Maccabees seemed like... Oh, that was a cool thing, or a sensitive thing, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But again, you zoom out, and it's it's much of a muchness. But at the time, mm. it was so commercially big that it felt like there was almost indie within indie. Oh yeah, no, yeah, this yeah. is the cool thing that's not that because that is on Kaiser Chiefs on the radio. I want to go and watch a band that may sound quite similar to the mm. Kaiser Chiefs. Because they're not on the radio, it's more like the real.
0: I, to put this in even funnier context, I remember being at Reading Festival in 2010 and watching the Maccabees directly follow Limp Biscuit,
4: which now <laughs> is
1: like such a fucking trip.
3: I'm going to have to ask him how uh, how his how his time with Fred Durst was. I was going to say,
1: his relationship with Fred Durst. I, I, uh, I was mm. thinking, like, what was popular? Because I definitely agree with you, Fred, that there there was a similar phenomenon that, like, As indie broke into mainstream in the U.S., then there was like more niche stuff and more like you know stuff that was never going to be major label. Like when Modest Mouse became huge in the mid 2000s, I remember working at a college radio station and like some of the bands like like I don't know if you if you know the band Deerhoof for example, like they're big in indie circles, but like they're never really going to get played on the radio. They might get a sync with like a Netflix show or something like that, but like they're just the way they. They are kind of uncompromisingly weird and they're not gonna and like that sort of thing was getting more and more or um or bands like of montreal and something mm. like who are big now but like we're still pretty pretty new then but i also think about british bands that were crossing over because maccabees didn't hear had never heard of them kaiser mm. chiefs only i predict a riot only song i had heard of um mm. uh i'm trying to think of other than the guys you've named i've never never heard of them at the time but like lady tron was huge in america like among indie kids, not necessarily on the radio, but like they were, mm. and I don't know if like a band like that was already like major label big here or if they were of a similar similar sort of. I grade. you grew up with Hard-Fi, as we all did. Um, a huge <laughs> Stains a friend No, but my you first, They sounded you, like you've got from to Stains. realize where I'm from, man. My first concert was well, I saw Bush, Buck mm. Cherry, and Somewhere the Runaways. Valley. Valley, yeah, nice, <laughs> like. And all, it's a hell of a lineup. Yeah, I was going to say, also I didn't realize Bush wasn't big here as, here as they are in America, but I don't want to derail the conversation. Yeah. But like, this stuff didn't really cross over, and we had a similar phenomenon. It's just that uh, those bands mm. weren't popular here at all, from what I can tell, and, and y'all, the, 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 the ones that you guys were <laughs> hearing about constantly and seeing, and it's, only it's, a few.
3: It's funny because we're, we're talking about this America. It makes me think of it, the Arctic because the Arctic Monkeys sort of went from being a British indie band they, I don't think they were ever an indie landfill band. They went, to me, they went from being a British indie band to being an American rock band. Yeah. Like some Josh Hom, all of that. They went to being like the guys in the desert wearing, you know, Although, boots. If, if we're talking mm. about
2: international crossover, I have a friend who makes the kind of uh, slightly un, um, what's the word, unproved, unsomething claim? Spurious. Spurious claim that Land for Lindy gave forth to essentially the second British invasion and the most commercial strain of British music in America in the form of Adele, Florence and the Machine, and Mumford yeah. and Sons. Mm. All of which came out of this um, mm. scene in one way or another. God, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, because, And ended up truly conquering America.
3: Yeah. Because L- yeah. L- Ludes, the band who, support, who, who I mentioned earlier, who played with Franz Vernon and Kaiser Chiefs, Florence was the girlfriend of... The bass player from Ludes, and they sounded mm. like almost
2: like a more sexy Mumford Sons
3: without the evangelical Christianity. They sort of yeah. they were bare heroes with the Clash, um, and then and and Mumford, I think I think started out supporting the Maccabees and all sorts of that other would, kind that of. That And, and, and so he
2: was Laura Marling's drummer, Marcus Mumford, um, and I think when he found out you could kick the kick pedal of a bass drum. And with oh, yeah. hands free, and One then you can pick up the guitar with that hand, and then get a little. Suddenly, you've got a hat full of coins
0: at the Edinburgh Festival. Exactly. Yeah. I. This is now. This is now real, like hauntology for me, because <laughs> I can d- distinctly remember there being like you know, like I'm at the. I'm at the Maccabees show trying to fuck the hot girl in my sixth form philosophy class or whatever, but like all of her friends then want to go and see fucking Mumford and Sons or Frank Turner.
2: Right, and that's where- Possibly possibly worse. And and by this point, it had mutated, but I think it's this lineage where people went to see Libertines or Pete Doherty and I was triggered coming in here because I remember- going to a, a Pete Doherty gig in his flat in Whitechapel where you had to pay mm. 20 pounds to a guy on the door in cash, which I realized years later was the drug dealer, to, to pay <laughs> off a kind of crack cocaine bill and then watch him play <laughs> an acoustic set in his front room or someone's front room. Mm. Um, but I think that was a, the lineage there was that people would go and watch him. They would see him wearing a straw hat and the takeaway mm. wouldn't be the music, but would be the straw hat. And so yeah. they'd go to the rehearsal room and they'd be like, okay, well, I've got the straw hat. Where do we go from here? And yeah. I think eventually this bled into country, into folk. You had obviously Jamie T, who's a great songwriter. But Jamie Co- T, who I love. In actually, the kind yeah. of folk tradition, and then people like Laura Marling and coming through influenced by him. And eventually this led to uh, Mumph and Sons appropriating deep Southern, like racist music or whatever. It's really weird yeah, to me yeah, that yeah. I,
1: I, I, I got to confess this I was never a fan of theirs. I heard a few songs here and there, never my thing. Mm. I did not realize they were English. I thought they were an American band right. because, because they were sort of putting on that impression. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I, they definitely are huge
0: that now. Was a, that was a weird era because I remember people that I knew being hugely into all at the same time, like, like fucking messianically into Mumford and Sons, Frank Turner, Muse, who were also like incredibly ubiquitous and mo- b- most bizarrely of all, Pendulum. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> I don't know how you bridge a taste gap
3: from Mumford and Sons to Pendulum to like cursed in completely different directions. And it's funny because it sort of occurs to me, but when we're talking about indie, we're also are we also perhaps talking about like the last period in this is this is far too uh, you know kind of enemy style journalism. But mm. are we are we talking about the last era of British tribalism? You know, like, like, like what Fred was saying about all these different nights it was true. And there's this tyranny of small differences where you would like, you would, you would like the mystery jets, but you wouldn't like, you know, Paolo Nutini. Thank um, God we've not got that on the left. Where, where, um, where, where, yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where now from, 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 you know, from a vantage point of 2021, you know, when people now talk about Land for Lindy and they lump a lot of different things together, it only seems like a lot of different things if you were there at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: But also this was pre, you you mentioned MySpace, but it was essentially pre-social media or the, the yeah. kind of self- um, mm. le, uh, l- l- elevating era of social media twitter what year was that 2010 09 06 oh, yeah 06 right,
1: right. but like it didn't really start to become a thing till 0809 08, right 09 right
2: and then instagram etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. this was still before that and yeah, Myspace was massive
0: I remember getting into a band on Myspace Because I'd seen their Myspace uh, address Written in dust on the back of a van
1: wow. <laughs> As a band yeah. called
0: Even Thieves So I don't think it ever got anywhere I, it, essentially the Victorian times Yeah, yeah,
1: talking yeah. About. Well, I mean, it is, it is well <laughs> yeah, to me Zoomers too Zoomers
0: cannot relate, simply They I, I, do not understand the you things we did We used to
2: have to leave messages in dust on vans For our work
0: Yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's wild pedophiles were the main method of disseminating <laughs> oh, music with their free advertising space.
2: But I, I do think uh, there could be an argument. Sorry to interrupt no, again. Please, please. please. Um, that Mumford and Sons existed as the kind of somewhere between Woodstock '99 and the rise of Trump. There's a kind of connection. There's a bridge, yeah, yeah. and I say that well, as, a, as
3: a friend of the band.
4: W- uh, and, <laughs> no, the and, ba- and of <laughs> course,
3: and of course, the disgraced bass player of Mumford and Sons, uh, a player, uh, is 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 the Son of the billionaire funder of the Unheard website, um, who also wrote, a yeah. News, who also wrote so, the Liberal yeah. Democrats' uh, orange book. So should be called
0: M- Mumford and Scions really. Were we... would be, <laughs> um,
3: you know. Mumford and heirs. I think we should ask Fred what it was like being in a touring indie band we can get to that because i'm it's very uninteresting but say
2: i feel like we've interrupted you no it's okay man
1: i the only question i was going to say was that i think what i perceived happening in the music industry was more that things that were like you were saying oscar genres that were sort of Mm. siloed off and you were a fan of this genre and like in america when you think about hip-hop or country music or like r&b to some extent A lot of that started to get blended into what was popular and what was selling records, and Mm. so in a way, I thought about this: like, who were kids into when I was in school, and you know, like, what would be the sort of radio music people were into? And some of it was like Rascal Flats, which is basically country, like pop country, or Mm. things like that. Shania Twain was kind of a groundbreaker for, and similarly, you know, you saw this happening with some indie bands that just kind of got incorporated into that. I mean, I liked them a lot, but I think TV on the Radio is a good example of that. It starts at a band like. Like, you know, Tundi at Impeg used to go and do like open mic nights with just like a, like a repeater pedal, uh, mm. you know, and a guitar. And like, they made, to my eyes, really challenging, good music. And like now they're, they're very much a like sell records, big label promotion kind of band. I think that sort of happened in the US. And I got the impression that there's a similar sort of flattening here. Um, I just, I think the big difference to me also from what you guys are telling in your stories is that. Uh, so much of it was happening, you know, around live venues in London, and obviously there was stuff around the country too. But it's just like for the US, it's just such a big fucking country that like what you have in your local scene is one thing. Most of that doesn't ever break out to the national stage. It is relatively mm. rare.
3: And so, the I th- I think and, and Fred, you were talking about this. The I think it's important to make the point you were making to me before we uh, came on air to, about about all these venues in London um not being around anymore there, there was a whole culture that and, mm. and it's not just in london but i mean it's it specifically
2: even in a, like a 25 meter square of um where tottenham court road station is now mm-hmm. in the development of is it hs2 is that train line what's the one they're building there that Cross C- crossrail. crossrail so in the in the development of crossrail they closed almost 10 venues to, to wow. make this train line that still is nowhere near coming to pass. The, you had the Astoria, which was basically London's only 1,500 capacity venue. So it, mm. was, uh, it was, you know, below Shepherds Bush Empire, which is 2,000, but above somewhere. that's like 800. So like the perfect size place to watch national, international acts. Underneath that, the Astoria too, the Mean Fiddler. We had the Frog Club Night on a Saturday night, which pretty much every band we talked of about played. It had one band every week, was just like on... 9 p.m. till 3 a.m. Mm. and easy to get into even without ID. You had Metro Club, you had Sin Opposite, which is like a three-story uh, uh, club, which is now where the new Glass Tottenham Court Road uh, thing is. I don't know what that is called. Yeah, Ge- Geodome. Uh, you had uh, the Roxy, which had the club night Panic. You had uh, the uh, Ghetto, which had the gay club Nag Nag Nag. Um, this Is literally off the top of my head. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there was more, uh, all of which had regular weekly nights. Um, you obviously had Brewer Street, Madame Jojo's, Madame Jojo's uh, yeah. where White Heat was before that. It was a club called Int- Infinity on Old Burlington Street. All of these places physically closed, Tatty Bogle, uh, which was off mm. um Carnaby Street, um, all. Long gone. You're you're lucky if they're even a kingdom of sweets now. They're probably just a closed-off, nothing (laughs) bit of of property sold to Russian or Chinese Mm. investors. Like literally nothing. Or they've been made for knocked down to make this Mm. high-speed rail that's never happened.
0: I saw the Kaiser Chiefs headline the M and M store. (laughs)
4: They were like, (laughs) there
2: was you know this was actually physically happening and providing relatively inexpensive social. Outlet. I don't want to go as far to say it was community, but there were communities within these things. Uh, trash at the End, yeah. um, uh, Errol Alkins Club. You could you could list them all day. And the, the sad thing is, music aside, there were spaces that young or youngish people could go and spend not much money in central London and get a mm-hmm. night bus back to somewhere. I... If I was an eighteen-year-old now, I would definitely be on Twitch or something because like where there's nowhere to go, especially not in Central mm. London, somewhere you could actually get home from and spend less than ten pounds to get in somewhere and spend spend less than five pounds on a drink. They 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 weren't hugely commercial enterprises. They were club nights that could the profits of which would just about cover the band and the promoter would take home a few hundred quid, do this four times a week, and yeah, yeah, yeah. live on it. You know, it was it was a quite there was something real aside from the uh the music industry there was live music and club culture on a local scale and this is before the kind of secret cinema and all this stuff that
4: You know, Mm. lots has
2: been said about how nightlife changed and became something where you have to spend 60 pounds four months in advance and dress up and bring your birth certificate to get into or whatever on nightlife has become now. And I know there's lots of good stuff and pockets of stuff. And and I don't want to sound like the old guy shaking my fist, but there was lots to do and it was cheap and it was Mm. fun. And and at least as central London's concerned, there's not so much. And now it's just the
3: subject of oral histories.
2: It, Even on this yeah. road, you had the Rhythm Factory where Liberty yeah, played lots of early gigs. My first band that we had to record mm. a tape, uh, a cassette tape, to give the guy a, d- a demo to try and get a gig. And we came back the next week and said, "Oh, did you listen to our tape?" And he's like, "Oh, you know what? I lost the tape, but I feel so bad. I'll give you a gig." And it's lucky he never heard the tape because it was so bad we didn't have yeah. never <laughs> a gig. Had he done, mm. but mm. it was a more there was something mm. to it I, I don't think it was necessarily better obviously now like we we're talking about earlier we've got the now have technology that anyone can make music at home without needing to spend hundreds or thousands of pounds going to a recording yeah. studio etc in some ways music has been democratized and we have access to everything through yeah. spotify but what we don't have it, there was something to be said of like queuing outside somewhere on a cold november evening with a mm. fake photocopied passport where you changed your and people didn't the id culture hadn't come in at the moment i yeah, think yeah. at that point i think it wasn't until david cameron where actually they got um started being having to have your passport or something actually you could have a photocopy of your passport with the date change and say you were born 100 yeah, years yeah, earlier yeah. than you were and they still <laughs> let you in mm. it was different you had 14 year olds the 13 year olds going to 18 plus nights and drinking and it was no one cares because it was sort
3: of because you know it was also it was part of in terms of london it was in terms of to talk about it just from a Londoner's point of view indie was it was also part of the story of soho which had always been this place you know this place where you could escape into the night and indie was part of that Mm. and and so the sort of destruction of soho uh the sort of
2: borderline i just thought
3: two more venues. yeah Yeah, yeah. yeah. there you go i mean it, it it's it's you know the and and crossrail itself is essentially designed to empty out the center of london of you know organic life and people living there mm. you know it's it's in a way it's raised on debt. it's basically to have people living further and further away from the center of london um but then for them to be able to get onto this train line that that takes them into the center to work Move and then to they to come fucking back to chelmsford out. yeah you know
2: now of- and, and and again, just before, so this doesn't get too London centric. I've listed London venues it's where I'm from, but ask anyone in Leeds, Nottingham, yeah. Liverpool, they'll be able to name you five, ten venues that have closed in the last ten, yeah. fifteen years.
0: Well, I think this is where it gets very trash future because we talk a lot about like kind of like the sanitization of urban centres and like the way that's gone on. And I think it crystallized it for me a lot living in Moscow because I feel like the Russians do everything like. 10 years later than us but at like four times the speed and so like seeing in moscow while i was living there it was like that phase of like that kind of like late 2000s of just like every cool place being closed like every like there was a nightclub called salyanka that everyone loved in in chinatown in uh in moscow and it got closed and turned into like some fucking oligarch's house or something uh there was a there's a really cool bar called Mayak. that was like a real like old intelligentsia spa where it was like drinking and music like way into the night. It was like a restaurant during the day, like super weird, fucking hibble dee like looked like a World War II era French bistro. Um, And that place got closed down and turned into like fuck knows what. Um, And just, yeah, you really felt that sensation of like literally you could be going out from one week to the next and
3: you had to reassess what was still open because stuff was closing at such a phenomenal rate. And in, and in terms of sort of, inter and 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 again it's you know the, we've mentioned the financial crash, and that was obviously a big part of it and it was also i suppose a part of i mean the the interesting i mean in a way one thing about the Maccabees that's different to a lot of indie bands that sort of followed on after the libertines is that they were given the chance to make four albums they were given they were given a chance to actually change and grow as a band and that was quite unusual, I think, Fred, after, um, mm. although Spectre, you've made, what, three, four albums now as well? But I mean, but like to count. But, 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 yeah. the, <laughs> but, 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 but the support for them, I mean, and again, it wasn't an enormous amount of support, mm. but, but they did have the opportunity. Well, tell that to the girls at my sixth form college, let me tell you. <laughs>
2: If we can get them back together for a for a focused group, <laughs> we just have to hope that this support is being given elsewhere in other ways now to things that are hopefully inspiring people in the same way. I don't, I
3: just feel like it's probably not. Mm. But I don't. But 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 you know, that's yeah. that's a sort of um, you know, the, the the landfill ends up sort of almost being inevitable in culture.
2: Tur- yeah, it turned out the landfill was actually literal in landfill. Indeed, <laughs> it, it, it was yeah. the rubble move to make way for um what's the train called again keep calling crossroad i don't even know its name i think the person who the builders actually recently said uh, or the architect that they now having built it or built a bit in Tottenham court road they realized they mm. would never have needed to get rid of the whole block that had all these venues on to build it so it was just this kind of mm. ridiculous stuff that's so we're always planning this this thing this it's probably, better it was probably used yeah, as an
3: excuse. It's the same way coronavirus is being used to kind of. Oh, here we go. Yeah, ever. Yeah. 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 Hey. But it's true. Yeah. I
2: don't know. Yeah. I think there's something to that that someone will be able Just like, like to say, able, I'm not
3: wearing a mask.
2: <laughs> be able to. <laughs> articulate no one will ever. Better than us. Make but me then, I'm, I'm sure they had a horrible underbelly of, you know, it, lots of sexual assault and kind of
3: drug deaths as
2: well. So we shouldn't be too, like, rosy
3: tinted about mm. it. it. There's also, obviously, a story about, in India of, like, these yeah these promoters who 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 made who made somehow did yeah make did did make money um out of it and you know some of some of them uh, went on to do things like a fan boiler room uh, uh or um uh, you know, start record labels that uh, then had to change their names uh, because of certain associations mm. yeah. so, you know yeah, it feels
0: bit- like going out in London now is like very like DJ centric you don't often hear of people going out and seeing bands in the same way, like people are very into like right. DJ, and I feel like that almost now directly correlates with the incredibly like low overheadness of DJing yeah. and like the very like easily placeable into like an, an easily defined space that it is. Um, That's true yeah, it's much more convenient to the needs of property developers to have people watching a DJ than watching a band.
2: Right. And again, that's why I think if someone was was charting this backwards and looking at things, they would be looking at a band like LCD Sound System or things in America yeah. or Claxons here that actually were the beginning of that mm. rather than music that essentially was still aping kind of 70s poses and sounds. Mm. So maybe we really are just talking about a kind of the echo of an echo of an echo that's shouldn't even be won't even be discussed mm. in 10 20 years more
0: yeah you know right now it seems like there's a huge difference between trash future and red scare but maybe you know people, <laughs> and people are doing
2: the retrospective uh no twitch stream
0: about difference. podcasting <laughs> it, but it, a landfill podcasting of the uh <laughs> of the 2020s exactly maybe um that way won't seem that way um i i'm definitely keen for like uh, fred if you have any like fun fun stories that you want to throw in from um, your days as a musician i'd definitely love to go for that but
2: uh, let me see. That's that's a hard thing to think of off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I'm not trying to put you on the fun spot. I feel that was what Oscar was doing earlier. Yeah, so I'm more no, throwing back it? rather than
2: uh, Oscar. You got any fun stories? Fun stories. I mean, lots well, of there, dark stories.
3: There was a sort of there was a sort of there was a few years ago a, a friend of ours, Rowan Martin, who's in a band called The River Method, um, started a, a thing on Twitter called uh, Indie, hashtag, yeah. called Indie Amnesty, which was basically where everyone sort of shared um shared their kind of shameful m- m- shameful or not memories of being extremely indie um i mean mm. i'm you know for for you know for, for for some people um it was just everything um their <laughs> whole life <laughs> Yeah, i mean all the stories i can think of are really sad like
2: um and not fun at all like I went to a Pete Doherty signing when he did that s- single for Lovers with Wolfman. And I um, mm. brought a copy of the book, The Libertine, uh, that they later made the Johnny Depp film of, which I gave him as a gift. And he seemed really um, thankful for it because he obviously knew how to deal with fans. He was like, oh, thanks so much. And I, and I was like, oh, you're, you're staying at the um, Royal Hotel, aren't you, near Edgware Road? I don't know how I knew this. He was like, yeah, yeah, you should come around f- for breakfast and said this like in passing and i went back to my friend i was like oh my god pete doherty's invited us to breakfast tomorrow at his hotel uh it's quite near where my like parents live um, he was like okay well I'll come and stay with you we'll you'll stay the night and then we can leave extra early to make sure we get there in time for doherty having breakfast and like turn up at this hotel at, you know 8 a.m mm. and go up to the desk and they say hello and they, who are you and like oh we're here to have breakfast with Pete Doherty, and they ice up with probably like 15 to 15-year-old 15 boys. <laughs> they'd call, and like, um, hi, is that uh, Peter? Yeah, there's two boys here to, to have breakfast. And they put the phone he's like, oh, he says come back tomorrow. So we're like... Okay, we we'll go. We're like, well, let's, let's wait at my parents' house because you live an yeah, hour away. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, so we can come back tomorrow because then we'll definitely get to have breakfast with him and wait another 24 hours, go back at 8 a.m. the next day. And they're like, they look at us with a sad look and like, hey, and we're, like, oh, we're here to have breakfast with Pete Doctor. And they're like, he checked out last night. Uh, <laughs> Pete Doherty
0: reverse nonce.
4: Absolutely
2: <laughs> desperate to avoid meeting two young boys. I mean, that's not a fun story at all. That's just a glimpse into the pathos of the Because this story involved Pete Doherty. I
0: thought it was going to be depressing
3: about Pete Doherty. So I've but, got lots of those ones as well, yeah, but this is just um, more
2: like the life of a fan before being a musician.
3: That. I mean, I remember, I remember there was a guy called Joe Lean who became a kind of byword for. The excesses of the music industry. He was probably, yeah, the ultimate Lanfield
2: Indy figure because this was a deal that may even reach seven figures mm. for an album that never came out. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, that's, that's its own
3: story. He, yeah, he, but- he, he, and, and he, he kind of, yeah, he, they, 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 they gave him all this money and then didn't release his album. Um, and, and, and at some point, he ended up um, living on my sofa for six weeks. And eating quite a lot of happy meals, McDonald's happy happy meals. Um, That's
0: ironically not a very happy thing to be. No, knowing.
3: and I think he probably wouldn't.
0: I, I I'm not sure he would even recognise. Get any good to toys? Was he trying to assemble a particular? <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, don't. I mean, he's very happy now. He's like, very He's he ha- he very spray, happy in now. In sp- yeah, yeah. He's. he's, he's mm. um, which is good to know. I mean. Um, this is us desperately trying to squeeze out a funny
1: story to see if we can get it.
0: <laughs> no, they're all depressing. <laughs> <laughs> they're all all of men broken yeah. by time. Uh, well,
1: <sighs> I don't know if you want to wrap it,
0: Milo, but uh, that Yeah, I mean, I think great. this has been a fascinating journey yeah, through Lampal th- Thank you for we, tolerating our uh, digressions. It's yeah. been really fun just I talking d- to it. I, w- <laughs> I did want to talk I, about hard fire more. Uh, we could talk about yeah. hard really, because true. we, uh, a friend and I had a, this, this is a fun story Working for the cash, machine, for the for the cash machine, yeah. Uh, living for the weekend. I think what, was hard, the, what was the
2: album uh, called? Uh,
3: Stars uh, of CCTV. Stars uh, yes, of CCTV. We was, live in a society. It wasn't Mark Fisher, but it was someone like Mark Fisher who made a, quite a good case for Hard Fire. Not, not, necessarily championing them as great Mm. artists but basically saying that they were denigrated for class reasons um Mm. Uh, unfairly denigrated for class reasons. I, I think that's... The cool. lower middle class were often denigrated unfairly at the yeah, time. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's probably well, that's probably fair enough. That I probably think, does you know. make sense in a way. Hard I to be. That. I mean, it's, mm, it's yeah. hard to get out of your head. They were, uh, yeah,
2: there was the underlying political message with them. Mm, yeah. well. Working for the cash machine. Yeah. yeah. You know. And they proved their own point. Overrated. <laughs> they were grand by, by I was going to say, we yeah. were just talking about 22, 22 grand job And the other's lackey. I don't want to be... Lacking a job that doesn't pay, and apparently, he got the job that Alan from the Rakes had left the 22 grand. He took it next, and they both <laughs> ended up in these bands, <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> which is testament to the small population size in London. Future the time. heads, yeah. decent days and nights, yeah, mm-hmm. um, decent days nights, block party, something weekend. Uh, they had one something about the weekend. Not that they're talking about the weekend's political, but you know, no, yeah, in no. a way, but in a way, well, yeah, hey, the five I mean, day working week exactly, is a product yeah. of true, trade
0: unionism, So I suppose, in go. a sense. Yeah, I remember, yeah, a friend and I had this really weird comedy radio show at university and our whole thing was we would only play music, which was objectively bad. <laughs> so we were going we were drinking and I remember like hitting on this rich vein of remembering hard fi and uh, my co-host still have a friend of mine going like, this is music for estate agents.
2: <laughs> I felt like there had never been a more damning indictment of a band. <laughs> but they're worth mentioning because each of those bands would
3: have had, you know, some yeah. real super fan. I feel like I have loads of stories that I've forgotten, but but it, as it and when it turns we'll out, send our fun stories I, in on
2: voice note. When, when oh, I, okay, when
3: yeah. I, when I it, but having said that, when I've when I've told them, it's realized I've realized that they're either. Depressing, libelous, or a combination of the two. Well,
0: those are, that's the trifecta
3: that we love yeah, on yeah, this yeah. show. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. it remains for us only to thank
3: Fred and Oscar very much for
0: coming in and joining us um, while we still have
3: disk space. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, is there anything that you guys would like to plug, to announce? Anyone you'd like to libel? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just seeing if there's anything in the
3: notes. Plug. Um,
2: I hear Oscar's got some great podcasts on open democracy,
3: which <laughs> <laughs> Nate produced. That's that's, about, that's a couple of years old. I, you know what? I'm I'm okay for plugging my.
4: Mm-hmm. For
2: plugging. I'm still work. a practicing musician, but mm. I wouldn't advise checking out any of the music unless you want a, you know, journey back to the depths of. said How
3: has an how has an indie tour changed in you know from when you were first playing?
2: I think this, the well, I'd be tempted to say the sex and drugs and rock and roll are still quite few and far between. And that, that's the, you know, sad reality for most touring mm-hmm. musicians.
0: All right. Well, um, thank you very much for listening to this and being a uh, Patreon subscriber. We uh. appreciate that. Thank you for yeah. being a subscriber. Yeah, and, all uh, the sex and drugs on this show is that noise that I do. <laughs> um, certainly
1: all the sex anyway. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we will talk to you later yeah. this month with yet another Brutnology.
0: Oh, yeah. Catch you later.